Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is hot as hell out there. Hey, stay cool, folks. Drink lots of water and uh, listen to the Bill Press Show. What do you say? Hello, everybody. Tuesday, July 3rd. Here we go with another edition, midsummer edition of the Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from our nation's capital, a hot and sweltering and humid uh, swamp called Washington, D.C., uh, where, thank God, we join you from our air-conditioned studio on Capitol Hill, uh, not far from the Capitol, where it's uh, pretty quiet down there today, uh, this week, because uh, Congress, um, in anticipation of uh, tomorrow's holiday, uh, the 4th of July, has, of course, taken the entire week off. Uh, but Donald Trump is down at the White House, uh, and as long as he's there, there's always lots of news to talk about and we'll bring you up to date on what's happening around the country and around the world. An amazing story of a rescue soon to start uh, in that uh, cave in Thailand where the 12 boys and their soccer coach were discovered yesterday after spending nine days of hell in that uh, deep in that cave. We'll tell you more about that. Uh, and also, uh, the president's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, yesterday uh, the guy who knows more about Donald Trump than anybody else, who's done lots of business deals with Donald Trump, who paid off Stormy Daniels for Donald Trump and God knows how many other women. Uh, Michael Cohen telling George Stephanopoulos of ABC News yesterday uh, that on the question of whether or not he will flip on Donald Trump or stick with Donald Trump, he made it very, very clear that his family and country come first, not Donald Trump. Trouble for Donald Trump, indeed. You see what I mean? Lots to talk about today on this Tuesday, July 3rd. Lots that you are going to want to comment on, so get ready. Run to your Twitter account. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. We go down to, where else? St. Petersburg, Florida, where there was a 15-year-old girl outside... 
and a group of gators chased her up a tree. Oh my God. She ran up the tree, began calling for help. Her mother actually heard her calls for help and had to call 911. Luckily, we have the audio. My daughter's stuck in a freaking tree. There's gators surrounding her. We can't get her out. She stuck up a freaking tree, is what the mother said to the 911 operator. Well, the police came out and shot one of the alligators. The girl was able to get down. But, I mean, that is just par for the course in Florida, I guess, right? Uh, we keep saying, well, coming up with lots of, lots of reasons, but, you know, to get rid of Florida. Yeah. There's another one. There's the alligators, yeah. I never uh, heard of an alligator chasing anybody. No. No. I mean, they're fast as hell. They really are. But I've never no. never had that happen to me, thank goodness. <laughs> By the way, another story about uh, uh, wildlife in North Carolina on the Outer Banks. They have wild horses. You know, we have some in Virginia, too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. on the Outer Banks, they have some wild horses. And <laughs> they're called the Colonial Spanish Mustangs. Uh, uh, Officers there and uh, leaders are saying, please, if you go to the Outer Banks, that's fine. Go and enjoy the beauty of the horses. But for God's sake, stop feeding them junk food. Because tourists are showing up and giving them junk food. Mm -hmm. Like their bags yeah. of chips yeah. and oh, all kinds of oh, crap. Great, and they're great. feeding these wild horses. So they've started a new <laughs> campaign called No No Feed, No Approach. In other words, keep your distance and by all means... Don't give them any junk food. They essentially only eat beach grass unless, you know, a Subway sandwich shows up, then they'll eat that. Yeah. Down Assateague Island, Shinkateague Island, the same thing with the ponies there. And they tell you, just don't feed them anything don't, at all. Don't yeah. feed the horses. No. Don't feed the horses. Don't feed them anything. But especially don't feed them, like, you know, Oreos and, and all of that. So. <laughs> I'm telling you. Just go and enjoy them. All right. That's thanks, it. Thanks for the wildlife report. Uh, <laughs> you today. got it. Yeah, good. <laughs> Ranger Rick over here. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. The heat wave sweeps the country uh, at a very dangerous level. Hope you are staying cool. Hello, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show on a Tuesday. Tuesday, July 3rd. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for being part of the program, the most important part of the program. You, our listeners, and our viewers all across this country, from coast to coast. We start out in Washington, D.C., but end up wherever you happen to be in this great land of ours. We're there with you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We join you, of course, on television, on Free Speech TV, part of the DirecTV network, and on the radio. Look at you in uh, statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and all over the greater Chicago area on the great WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago. Lots going on today, and uh, we have uh, some great guests coming in. Uh, to join us, Nate James is the president of one of the biggest locals of the American Federation of Government Employees, coming in to talk us about uh, things, how things are going in uh, the w world of organized labor today, particularly after the Supreme Court's big uh, disastrous decision uh, last week. Christopher Catalago, Catalago, sorry, 
covers the White House for Politico. Uh, to bring us up to date on the latest, Donald Trump tweeting away this morning again on the immigration issue, uh, accusing anybody who it does not agree with him 100% on ripping kids from their parents and locking them up or even locking the families up together, that anybody who doesn't agree with Donald Trump, of course, is for open borders and for letting MS-13 uh, take over in every city and town in America, which, of course, is nonsense. But we keep hearing that from Donald Trump, and he's spewing it out again this morning in his tweets. And finally, we'll be joined by the number one Democrat in this country, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, Chairman Tom Perez. So most importantly, you are our uh, most important guest again and we look forward to hearing from you and your comments on all the news of the day at BP Show. Yeah, a couple of things here uh, off the political beat for just a second. I mentioned at the very top there, this heat wave. It is, it's not just hot. It is dangerously hot, and not just in certain parts of the country. It's all, if, you, if you've seen the map, I mean, the red map, <clears throat> the red meaning above average temperatures, uh, yesterday, above average temperatures in 99% of the country. Only up in the very Pacific Northwest, or Washington, parts of Oregon, uh, was there any uh, normal temperatures, and the rest just absolutely blanketed. Here in Washington, D.C. yesterday, it was 95. Uh, in other parts of the country, I saw up in... Uh, uh, Burlington, Vermont, actually, doesn't get that hot up there usually, 97%. Uh, next week, um, it's supposed to be even higher, it, it temperature's even higher. And today in, today in Washington, D.C., uh, it's predicted to be 105 degrees. <clears throat> I know where I'm staying. I'm staying right here. I'm, I'm not leaving this air-conditioned studio, not even to get to my air-conditioned home. But anyway, be careful. Be careful. Um, don't go outside unless you have to. And when you do, wear something comfortable and drink lots of water. That's the thing, man. You got to drink a lot of water. Because real. I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but it is true. I sometimes mean, the difference between, like, 95 degrees and 105 degrees is not necessarily all that perceptible. I mean, look, it's it's hot. Don't get me wrong. But you might not notice how much water you're losing in that heat. Mm -hmm. You really, so just like, for God's sake, drink some water. Yeah, so take care. It is as a dangerous situation out there, wherever you are in this great, uh, in this great country. Uh, but the other story, out of Thailand, unbelievable. I don't know with you, but I am just so, been so gripped by this story. So, you know, if it, uh, it's hard to believe you're anywhere on the planet and didn't know what was going on. So... Nine days ago, now 10, these kids, this soccer team, uh, 12 kids, uh, ages 11 to 16, with their soccer coach, so end of the season, they were sort of celebrating, and they went to this famous area where there are these caves, uh, which are very, very popular, and a lot of people walk into them, except during the rainy season. And there's a big sign that says, don't go into these caves during the rainy season. They did. And it's been monsoon rains, and they got trapped inside. Uh, and they were feared loss. They were feared, you know, loss forever. Um, but rescuers began to been a heroic effort. We've got some top, top crack, a crack uh, American rescue teams there. The best cave rescue team in the world happened to be from the U.K. 
Uh, they were on the scene, thousands of rescue workers, and they figured out, and they went in, and it was these British divers yesterday. A couple of British divers, if you've seen the video, go online, watch the video. It's so uh, moving that they come across these 12 kids and their soccer coach perched up on a dry ledge uh, above this uh, this swollen and flooded uh, passageway, very narrow passageway, where they had been stuck up there for nine days. And, of course, uh, they were hungry. <laughs> they were glad to see the rescuers. But here's the deal, because it's, this is still the rainy season, the monsoon rains, they are stuck in there, and they don't know how they're going to get them out. Now we know they're safe. Now we know they're alive. Now we know they're hungry. So the first challenge is getting food to them. And they plan, get this, this is how, how difficult the rescue is. Because they've been pumping water out, but they still, there's so much rain and so much water going in, they can't pump it out fast enough. They're, t they're, putting, they're getting them a four-month supply of food. Four months because they figure that may be how long they have to stay there before they can get them out. I missed that part of the story, and uh, that is insane. Unbelievable. So what they're saying is there's just, like, no way they can drill down and open up something because all that – what's going to happen? All that sure. stuff would fall on them, Sure, right? sure. To drill down and open up so they could pull them out from the top. So they have to get them out of this passageway, which, again, are flooded. They're muddy. They're dark. There's no light in there. Uh, very, very, very dangerous uh, conditions. These expert British divers were able to get in there. But to get the kids out, some of these kids can't swim. And they're, so they're actually thinking of giving them scuba lessons and getting scuba gear in there teaching them how to scuba dive, and then taking them out, which would be very, very, very dangerous to, uh, to do. I mean, look, first of all, I've never learned to scuba dive. I've done a lot of snorkeling, but I know, you know, I, I know a little bit about it. But even in clear water, scuba diving is tricky, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and you get – and cave diving is particularly dangerous, particularly if you've never done it before. So um, th the question now of how to get them out of there. Now, now we know they're, the good news is we know they're alive. The bad news is, uh, and the tricky part is, getting them out. But it's an incredible rescue story. Just they were, uh, I've seen anywhere from two to six miles inside of that cave. And they're at least a half a mile down from the, from the earth. So, um, boy. Uh, Needless a four-month supply of food. Four months That's supply insane. of food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They speak very little English, but one little one, one <laughs> enough English that one one the little one little boys was quoted as saying, "Eat, eat, eat." Yeah, <coughs> yeah. I'd be saying that too. <laughs> damn it, In English. That's all you can say. <laughs> right. Eat, eat, eat. Yeah. Why? Nine days down there. If you bring me four months of uh, food, <laughs> that would probably last me a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They need four months of food just to catch up, right? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then so, at, at any rate, but what a heart, heartwarming story, the fact that they were caught. Uh, back on the, the, the political front here in the United States, big news yesterday and bad news for Donald Trump. 
Michael Cohen, we remember him. He is the president's private attorney. Um, he has been his business partner in many deals. He's the guy that uh, Donald Trump turned to and uh, said, hey, I got this problem with Stormy Daniels. We need to shut her up before the election so she doesn't talk and ruin this whole thing for us. Uh, can you make a deal with her? Michael Cohen did, paying her on Donald Trump, paying, reimbursing him, uh, paying Stormy Daniels, we know, $130,000, which Michael Cohen has admitted doing. Uh, and the big story was now that uh, Michael Cohen is being investigated by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Remember, this is Robert Mueller who discovered all of this, and he said, this doesn't fit my uh, um, my mission, so I'm going to turn it over to the Southern, uh, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and let him decide what to do. They filed charges, raided Michael Cohen's office and home and hotel room. Um, they seized something like 3 million documents of his, uh, 3.7 million documents of his, files of his. Uh, they went through them, and um, uh, the judge agreed that the prosecutors could keep 1.3 million of those files, and that's what they've got. And so the whole question was, would Michael Cohen stick with Donald Trump, or might he cooperate with prosecutors uh, and even uh, give some damaging information about Donald Trump. At first, everybody said, oh, no, Michael Cohen and Donald Trump, they are buds. They're, they've been together for so long. And Michael Cohen even said he would take a bullet for Donald Trump. Well, that was then. This is now. Today, today, it's a different story. Michael Cohen sitting down for an interview with George Stephanopoulos, a taped for Good Morning America Curiously enough, it has not been shown yet on Good Morning America, but yesterday on GMA, George Stephanopoulos talked about the interview and read some quotes from the interview. Uh, here is the key finding, George Stephanopoulos yesterday, ABC Good Morning America. One of the big questions I asked him is, what will you do if prosecutors come to you and offer you leniency in return for information on President Trump? Now, he said he wanted to respect the process, didn't get into specifics, but he added this and he added this with emphasis. My wife, my daughter, and my son have my first loyalty and always will. I put family and country first. Nothing there about loyalty to President Trump. That's pretty significant. My wife, my daughter, and my son are my highest priority. I put family, notice, and country first. He did not say uh, my first loyalty is to the president of the United States, which, by the way, we've talked about this earlier, and we made the point. Yeah, you'd say the same thing if you were facing 30 years in prison. Why are you going to go to 30 years in prison to do a favor for Donald Trump? And you know Donald Trump would stab you in the back in uh, New York second, of course. George Stephanopoulos later in the day elaborating on what this means about family first. This is the guy who said he would always be loyal, would do anything to protect the president. But when I asked him directly, what if prosecutors force you to choose between protecting your family and protecting the president? He was absolutely unequivocal. Family first. That's where my first loyalties lie. He also said he added something that he hasn't said before, family and country. He was signaling strict separation from President Trump, also sending a signal to prosecutors that basically he's open for business. Yeah, basically saying, hey, do you want to make a deal? I'm ready to make a deal. 
Uh, different, totally different story than we've heard and approach than we've heard from Michael Cohen before this. You know, it's so funny because th- this is not new of trying to send a message through the media, right? right. Like yeah. people have done this for a long, long time. I don't know that we've ever seen it quite so blatantly as we've seen in the age of Trump. Like Michael Cohen is clearly trying to send a message to Donald Trump, I think. Amen. Yeah. You know, and, but, and how soon before Donald Trump puts out a tweet? undercutting and and stabbing Michael Cohen in the back. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Yeah, keep watching, keep watching, yeah. Uh, Again, back to George Stephanopoulos. Well, what about, what about, uh, what about you're saying uh, you take a bullet for this guy? Went back at Cohen a third time and said, wait a second, Michael, I've heard you say in the past you take a bullet for President Trump. I said, I've heard you say you'll always be loyal. You'll do anything to protect him. All he said in response, and he said this with emphasis, to be crystal clear, my wife, my daughter, and my son in this country, this country, have my first loyalty. That is a very, very different message from what we've seen from Michael Cohen. Uh, indeed it is. And again, uh, one more time, I think the uh, president's defense team are going to have to be recalibrating uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, this was raised at our briefing at the White House yesterday, and all she said was, uh, check with outside counsel. No, I'm not going to answer questions on this topic and would refer you to the president's outside counsel. Uh, yeah, outside counsel. So far as we know, that's Rudy Giuliani, but Rudy Giuliani, for some reason, has not been on cable television this I, week. I've missed Rudy. Oh, my God. What's going on? I don't know. Uh, at any rate, uh, Rudy Giuliani, we'll see if Rudy Giuliani comments at all. But you got, you got, it's got to make Donald Trump and his team nervous when Michael Cohen, again, the man who knows more secrets about Donald Trump than anybody else, Michael Cohen is now saying, I'm ready to make a deal. I'm ready to cooperate with Robert Mueller or the U.S. attorney or whomever. You know, the, the story that really made my jaw drop yesterday about this was the fact that prosecutors have 1.2 million documents. Yeah. 1.2 yeah. million documents from Michael Cohen, which you got to think about how much business he's done with Donald Trump and how many of those 1.2 million documents directly relate to Trump. I'd say half of them would be a conservative guess. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. He was Donald Trump's personal attorney. Right. He had an office in Trump Tower right alongside of Donald Trump's office. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, they were doing deals all day long. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's there's some major information in those documents. And one 1. of the two million of them. And, and one of the deals that we know he did was paying off, paying hush money to women, who had, that Donald Trump didn't that, that wanted to keep quiet. Yeah. Well, put it that way. So right. Uh, by the way, why we're on the uh, on the White House and maybe trouble for uh, for the uh, for the Trumpers. Um, We've talked before what a, about what a bunch of grifters this is, this, this whole administration is. Yeah, it's cabinet members, right? And we've seen so many of them using their positions to just enrich themselves and live the high and like the lifestyle of the high and mighty. And of course, Scott Brewitt's number one, but it's also Ben Carson. For a while, it was Tom Price at HHS. It's Ryan Zinke at Interior. It was David Shulkin at the Veterans Administration. It's Steve Mnuchin at Treasury. But, of course, the worst of all are the first family themselves. Yes, first daughter Ivanka Trump and her husband Jared Kushner, who reported making 
at least $82 million last year in outside income with all kinds of conflicts of interest while they were uh, serving in the White House. Uh, Ivanka making over $5 million alone from her jewelry and accessories and clothing clothing line, which she continues to uh, pump around the world and getting um, uh, you know permits and copyrights uh, in uh, uh, countries that we're dealing with, like China. Uh, but then the president himself, who every day is making money from all of his properties around the globe in direct violation of the emoluments clause, all of them, starting with the president, basically using their positions, what this short-term time that they have in public office, in the, hopefully it's very short, in the White House or in a cabinet position, to enrich themselves so they will leave richer than they were when they came in. Uh, guess what? We add another name to the list this morning, and that is the First Lady herself, Melania Trump. It was reported yesterday by NBC News that the First Lady has been well, basically, selling family photos. Yeah. Or to be more direct, she has been allowing uh, news organizations to use private photos taken of the Trump family, the president, the first lady, son Barron. Never see pictures of him anywhere else unless you've paid the price. And they, they've allowed, she's allowed these family photos to be used by certain news organizations with the condition that any story that they write using these photos will have to be a positive story about the Trump family. I mean, come on. How God. close they are, how much they love each other, what fun they have together, what a great father Donald is, what a great, you know, the whole thing, blah, blah, blah. And by handing out these photos to friends in the, in the media business, uh, the First Lady has made... These are, these are from official reports that they have to file. She has made anywhere between $100,000 and a million dollars. These reports, it's the same with reports from Congress. They have a very wide range. You don't have to give the precise amount of money you made. It's, a, it's over 100000 but less than a million. And you know what? You know it was closer to a million, probably oh, over a million. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, have you I mean, met the Trumps? Yeah. Yes, yeah. of course. No that's doubt what about doing. it, right. So uh, just one more who is using every opportunity to uh, to line her own pockets. It's the uh, first, first lady uh, herself. Um, uh, and uh, I guess on that point, while we're mentioning uh, that with all the attacks against the media, uh, she's profiting, of course, from the media who are willing to write positive stories. Uh, about her family. Um, this not so good, but not surprising, I guess. The tragic, another tragic thing that happened uh, last week while I was on vacation, another mass murder, this at a newspaper office up in Annapolis where five reporters from the Capitol Gazette were gunned down by this crazy guy who had a real beef with the paper, thought they had written, and they, they had sued them for a story they had written about him um, assaulting a high school student a few years ago. Uh, he walked up to the office of the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis and just b m mowed down five um, of their leading journalists there. Uh, the mayor of Annapolis, uh, the funeral for them, was all, uh, the service for all of them was yesterday. 
The mayor of Annapolis uh, asked the president of the United States last Friday uh, if uh, he would order that flags be flown at half-staff in honor of the five journalists uh, who were murdered, in memory of the five journalists who were murdered. And the president said, no. Wow. No. Uh, White House turned it down. Just said, no, well, we'll lower the flags for other kind of people who were murdered, but we will not lower the flags for five journalists who were murdered on the job. Uh, Says a lot. Donald Trump yesterday at the White House using his time to uh, conduct the first interviews for his Supreme Court position. He, again, is working off the same list that he showed back in 2016. Uh, it's It's a list of people about as extreme conservative as you can get. But remember, this is the list that saved the day for Donald Trump because... In 2016, when the uh, Access Hollywood tape came out and all the other stuff about Donald Trump and his alleged affairs, and this is before we knew about Stormy Daniels, of course, uh, the, e- the evangelicals were getting very, very nervous. Why did they not dump Donald Trump or go for some other candidate? Because of this list, this list of 11 people, all of whom, all of whom have said, um, that they are, one of their priorities would be to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. This list is the same list Donald Trump is working from now. Uh, one of them is uh, William Pryor. William Pryor has said that the Roe v. Wade is the, how did he put it, the most, the worst abomination of constitutional law in our history. William Pryor, he's on Donald Trump's list. Kellyanne Conway yesterday admitted that they're working from the same list, and she said, I mean, listen to her, hey, this list saved our ass once. It'll save our ass again. He cannot be more transparent. He put the list out. His political opponent did not, and it made a big difference. Obviously, 56% of Trump voters said that the Supreme Court was very is, is very important to them. There you go. I, yeah. I, let me so put his base way. is saying... The Supreme Court is all that counts. We don't care what a scum he is. We don't care what a sexual abuser, a sexual attacker, a sexual assault, whatever he is. We don't care about anything else. All we care about is the Supreme Court. Let me put it this way. Uh, Jeff Flake uh, likes to go out there and talk about how bad Donald Trump is. Bob Corker has done the same thing. You see a lot of Republicans that think that that, that Donald Trump is a force for bad. Right. Right. Well, if they really thought he was bad, now's the time to show it. If they really thought he was bad, they could switch parties. They could switch parties. They could stop the Supreme Court nominee. They don't have to do that much. They could just vote against him. Just vote against him for once. Yeah, for but, once. For, yeah, exactly. But they're not going to. They're going to vote for whoever the Supreme Court nominee is. I don't care who it is. I don't care how radical or extreme they are. Jeff Flake, Bob Corker, Lindsey Graham, everybody that's sort of Susan Collins. I was going to say, and add Susan Collins. She's going to vote for whoever it is. She is the most, I believe, the most hypocritical of all uh, and and the most disingenuous of all when she says, uh, we talked about this yesterday, I will never vote for anybody who uh, will not agree to uphold the precedents of the Supreme Court that have been set by previous courts, including Roe v. Wade. That's what she says. I will never vote for anybody who would do that. Last week, the Supreme Court 
five members of the Supreme Court voted three times to overturn long-standing precedents of the Supreme Court, including a disastrous decision for organized labor, the Janus decision, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. But anyhow, five justices voted to overturn three long-held precedents, and Susan Collins voted for three out of five of those justices. And now she says, once again, and each time in the past, she has made this same pious statement, I'll never vote for anybody who won't, who won't stand behind the long-standing uh, uh, conditions or precedents of the court. She said it before, and she's, she's done just the opposite, and now she's out there again with the same old pious promise, and anybody who falls for it, you know, believes in the Easter Bunny. Lots to talk about today on this July 3rd, Tuesday. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with uh, Nate James from the American Federation of Government Employees to talk about that Janus decision and a whole lot more is happening in the world of organized labor. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. You bet it is on a Tuesday, July 3rd, the Bill Press Show, live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And our studio right here in the heart of the action on Capitol Hill. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us. Again, uh, our studio in Washington, D.C., where we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, the good men and women of the AFGE under President J. David Cox. Uh, the people who uh, staff our federal agencies all across the country day in and day out, proud to get up and work for America every day. We salute them, thank them for their good work and their support of our program. Direct you to check out their website and all the good things they're doing at AFGE.org. And we welcome to the studio one of the leaders of the AFGE, the president of Local 3331 right here in Washington, D.C., uh, Mr. Nate James. Oh, Nate, it's good to see you. Good to be here. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, say hello to our good friend, uh, President J. David Cox. Next time will you do. see him. I right. will. Uh, we've been at it here for a little while with all the uh, news uh, of the day and uh, wanted to check in with Peter Ogburn. Yes, indeed. A couple of comments from you watching the show and listening to the show. Uh, we're on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. Uh, Walker Ogden, uh, this is our one pretty good comment. The solution to climate change, just turn off the air conditioning to little Donnie, Scott Fewitt, <laughs> and all of the other swampies. Just give them some heat here in Washington, D.C. By the way, I, I've often said that's the answer to problems in Washington, D.C., is turn off the air conditioning. Maybe they'll all just go home. Things right? are getting done a little bit faster. Yeah, right. If you have a comment, make sure you find us on Twitter, at BP Show. Also, Bill... Uh, yeah. He's tweeting. Uh, yeah, he's been tweeting all morning. He's yeah, tweeting. I know. He's tweeting. Let's just jump right into uh, his mo his re most recent tweet this morning. He tweeted about North Korea. This was about 20 minutes ago. Many good conversations with North Korea. It is going well. In the meantime, no rocket launches or nuclear testing in eight months. Mm -hmm. All of Asia is thrilled. Only the opposition party, which includes the fake news, is complaining. If not for me, we would now be at war with North Korea. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. How many missiles have, how many nuclear weapons have they destroyed? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> None. Ugh. Right. 
And then he uh, has another tweet, which is... By the way, it is good that they haven't sent a sh- tested another missile. Sure, yes. Yeah. That's yeah. a positive thing. Right. But you know you know who's making that decision, and you know why he's making that decision. Yeah. Because Kim Jong-un is getting everything he wants out of Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, one other uh, com- uh, a tweet from Donald Trump this morning. When we have an, quote, infestation, end quote, I'm not sure why he put that in quotes, uh, of MS-13 gangs in certain parts of our country... Who do we send to get them out? ICE. They are tougher and smarter than these rough criminal elements that bad immigration laws allowed into our country. Dems do not appreciate the great job they do. And then he ends the tweet by just writing November, like, no, NOV, N-O-V, period. Doesn't finish the tweet. It doesn't go anywhere. And he doesn't continue into the next tweet. He just writes November and that's it. You know, uh... I think, actually, if you check the facts, but God forbid that we ever check the facts, that you would find out that it's not ICE that is uh, tracking down and uh, cracking down on the MS-13 gang members, wherever they happen to be. It's the local police departments that are doing so, and ICE is too busy uh, (coughs) ripping kids away from their parents and locking them up in detention camps. But, again, why let the facts get in our way? Uh, Nate James, you and I have other things to talk about. So, again, it's good to see you. We uh, I just referenced uh, toward the end of the last half hour the Supreme Court decision last week and the Janus decision, mm-hmm. which basically says that, uh, as I understand it, tell me if I'm wrong, um, that uh, so it's a union's job to negotiate through collective bargaining for salary, benefits, and everything for federal employees or public employees. Um, but those members of those uh, people who who work there um, don't have to pay their union dues, or if they don't want to, yet they get all the benefits of the work the union is doing for them. That's correct. Right. That is correct. Yeah. So, uh, what does Janus decision mean then for uh, a union like the AFGE or for federal workers? Well, I'm going to speak to you from where I am. You know yeah. how it runs in my local. One, we don't charge non-members anything. If you're not a dues-paying member, you're just not a dues-paying member. You're still in the bargaining, you still get coverage. But at a larger scale, I'm, I'm understanding that there are locals that, that I think rightfully uh, put some sort of uh, financial uh, responsibility on people that receive. I could understand if locals negotiated work schedules, which we do, collective bargaining. Uh, we don't do wages, so that, that's, that's uh-huh. off the table. Yeah. So we in the union make sure that employee rights are protected, and we make sure that we're trying to always improve the quality of work life. If we can't have a raise or we can't have an extra financial benefit, we can have maybe a lactation uh, room for mothers that, that just had child. Now, as far as the Janus decision, I think that's a big, it has a bigger scope. It's an attack against employees and their ability to have representation in the workplace. You need a voice. Who doesn't want to be heard? And when you're not being heard, who wants somebody that can come in with some degree of force to say, hey, look, here's what employees would like to see happen. Here's what would make this a better organization. So when I hear that uh, there's employees out there that think that it's asking too much, if you're not going to give to an organization that's making the, the workplace better for you, don't accept the things that that, that, that organization exactly. puts on the table for you. Exactly. Where else can you go? Can you go in the grocery store and just eat what you want but not pay for it if you, if you, if you get too full? 
And that's, and that's where I think we are in the federal government. You know, it's, it's just kind of a thing that people do. We, we tend to sometimes want a little bit more than we're willing to pay but, for. Well, you're being very kind. I mean, mm-hmm. I think these people are freeloaders. I mean, well, that's a name for them. Yeah, um, that they're they're they just they want all the benefits, but but they want the free lunch. They want the free lunch, but not pay anything for it. That's correct. Right. And right. the only time they really look for the union is on their darkest day, when they run into trouble, for whatever reason. Then they come looking for a union. Well, it, what if the attorney's office worked that way? They don't know. So they don't always work for free. Yeah. So yeah. you know, you got to pay for. You know, if it's worth having, it's worth paying for. Right. Um, how do your what impact will this have on? There's been a lot of talk. Yes. That this is really going to undercut the uh, strength of the labor movement in this country, and and thereby undercut other organizations. Um, and other causes that the labor unions support, not just political candidates, but a lot of good organizations like MoveOn.org mm-hmm. gets a lot of money from 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 labor unions. Um, a lot of uh, progressive media, like this show, gets money from labor unions. So, mm-hmm. to what extent? What is the impact of that decision? You think going to be on the strength of the uh, of organized labor? I think that's carefully thought out by those that are that are putting this attack against mm-hmm. unions. If you can, of course, it takes finances to do anything. Yeah, right. You know, right. What, what would some of these other organizations that are doing these things be without the Koch brothers? <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah. What would they be? Right. So unions as the workers, we're all workers, and we're asking each other to support each other financially, little bits. We will never match dollar for dollar corporate America. Our power is in our numbers. The money that we bring forward is so that we can litigate, so that we can uh, give some sort of funding to folks that that, that needed to do you know, radio shows, television shows. Television's a bit expensive, but uh, yeah, yeah. you know, unions are not making money hand over fist. I know what the perceptions are out there, but the realities are. I mean, come on, unions are on the decline. When people get comfortable, they tend to pull back. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that all of this is waking America up. If you get up in the morning to go to work. When you start to find it more difficult to report corruption, because we're having a hell of a time with that at our organization, at EPA, employees are very fearful to speak up. Well, what they can't say, their union rep can. I'm here today as a union rep on behalf of EPA employees and American citizens. We forget who the EPA is. The EPA employee, if if there's 13,000 of us left, I'd like to say 12,000 of them are your neighbors. They go to your schools. They shop in your grocery stores. They are not making these decisions that you see on CNN and everywhere else on the news. That is not the everyday employees. That's that handful of people that have a bigger desire to make money, to tell corporations it's okay to dump toxins into your water, put them into your air, bury them under the soil. It's those kind of things that that somebody has to speak out against. And if there's no unions to and, and there's no protections for employees, you're not going to get that kind of news. All right. I think so that's so you, you've I wanted to get into EPA with you, and you've gone there. So first of all, local thirty three thirty one, your union, your president is EPA employees, correct? That's correct. Here in Washington D.C. Right here in Washington. They're EPA employees all across the country. That's correct. correct. How many? different locations? There's about 14 locations in the in, in, uh, United States. All right. There's another uh, story today. 
yet another story about Scott Pruitt. Mm -hmm. Uh, The latest is a former employee says that Scott Pruitt asked her help in getting his wife a $200,000 job, right? Um, Do you know any of these people that uh, were you ever asked by Scott Pruitt to do anything like this? Or do you know any that she's not the first one to come forward to say, I mean, we've heard the stories, sending people to to get his favorite uh, body lotion that he likes, right, at the Ritz-Carlton. Or taking his laundry out, or getting his son's tickets to ball games, all that kind of stuff. Do you know some of these people? I might know some of the people, but uh, I'm not quite sure yet. I think I'm hoping I'm having a bad dream because uh, Scott Pruitt is the first EPA administrator that I've never la- never laid eyes on. So it, it's Wait, a pretty guard. what I've never laid eyes on, on. I've never seen him in the flesh. And you work there? I work right there. You work at the headquarters. I sure do. And wait, and you're the president of the union that represents the EPA employees. The EPA employees who work there. That's correct. Jesus. Where has he been? Well, I'd like to know, but it seems like he's getting around and he's doing a lot of things. Yeah, he is. Unfortunately, they're not things that uh, help the environment. Well, does he ever, like, walk through the offices and, like, say hello to people? I've heard tell that that happens, but I'm sure those are very select offices, and uh, I'd wonder how many actual career EPA employees were in those offices when he did walk through. Whoa. Uh, I think that says a lot about his management his management style. Um, but So what is the feeling among EPA employees? I mean, look, EPA had a, has a great reputation. It's been damaged a lot mm-hmm. by Scott Pruitt. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that mean to the people who work there? It's demoralizing. Uh, I think the average age of employees at EPA is somewhere around 50. So they've been there a long time. Uh, They're highly trained, educated. Uh, Most are scientists. And uh, they really love the work that they do. It's not like a a job where you walk into and you're doing it just to make a buck. They truly believe in the mission of the the agency. And you hear people say things. Which is to protect protect the the environment. environment. That's correct. And you hear people say that, you know, I, I love my job and, and it's been so, you know, I've been here so long doing what I do. I have a love for it. I understand the importance of it, but I don't feel that way anymore. And we're starting to lose a lot of real talent that's not going to be easily replaced. So these are people who are leaving on their own? That's correct. And uh, is there open recruitment for young scientists to take their place? It's very limited. Almost, to, to, it's almost non-existent. We're, 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 you bring in, you, you know, you let go of, you not really let them go. They're leaving. So when you lose that kind of talent, even if you hire, you don't hire the talent. You might get a body, but you got to train that body up. Where do you where do you get that institutional knowledge? You don't. So so America is losing in all of this. We're replacing. If we're replacing a a high-level scientist with years of experience, and we're bringing in a hard-charging young person that has the, the, the fire and desire but not necessarily trained up to what they need to do, America's going to suffer for that. What's the difference between uh, EPA under Scott Pruitt working, uh, the difference yeah. working there, EPA under Scott Pruitt and EPA under, let's say, Gina McCarthy under uh, President Obama? I would say the difference is that the mission seems to have changed. Under Gina McCarthy, the agency was geared toward serving the public. This EPA, under this leadership, is geared toward serving corporate America. And that's not healthy for the environment. It's not healthy for the American citizen. Um, 
it, it does now you haven't seen him in the flesh but uh i mean does pruitt reach out to and even meet with environmental organizations or not that I'm aware of. I, I, maybe yeah. you know. Maybe there's some select groups. I, I think he did something there, out in Arizona here and there. I mean, there are lots of pictures of him meeting yeah. with corporate right. America. That's right. Yeah, at headquarters. So I'm just wondering if the door is ever open to uh, people from the Sierra Club or National Natural Resources I, Defense I, I, Fund I, or kind of whatever. It doesn't. Yeah. It, it it doesn't sound like it. But so again, those of you there at the EPA, you were you've worked your your butt off for years. Um, coming up with sound environmental regulations to protect the environment, clean, give us all, all Americans clean air, clean water, cutting back down on the uh, the ability of the oil co- companies or whatever to just mm-hmm. pollute our air and water. And uh, you've seen in in the last year a lot of those regulations again that you worked on and developed and got adopted just reversed. Just reversed. Right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, that must be demoralizing for it the is. people who work there. People have put their lifetime in, into to some of those successes that have been made over the years. And believe in those they do. rules and regulations right? You know, as, as important and as necessary, and then see them just turned yeah, around. That's right. Um, no, wonder, no wonder people are leaving. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about wages. I'm going to ask you about that. Um, why don't you negotiate wages? Federal employees are paid through tax dollars, as we know. Yeah. And that's through Congress. So whatever happens with, just like the military, whatever happens with wages, that, that's a congressional decision. Got so it. federal unions don't, don't, uh, bar, don't negotiate over what, what wages right. will be. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it, each year that is done through congressional appropriations that's or correct. whatever. Okay. Um, and, you know, people have this impression uh, about public employees that they're living high and mighty, um, you know, um, and and becoming very, very wealthy by these jobs, uh, uh, public employee jobs. What's the truth? I would like to see some of those employees you're speaking to because <laughs> <laughs> most of the employees... I uh, just hear that all the time. Yeah. I, I hear it as well. Uh, there are em- employees, of course, at, at the very top level. Like I said, they have years of experience. They've come up through the ranks, but that is not how you start out, and really it's not how you end up if you compare it to what it would cost their taxpayer if a, a private privatization mm. came in. And I think that's what this is really all about, trying to privatize the uh, federal service. Uh, I've served in some capacity of federal service my entire life. Uh, we don't realize that uh, the average federal employee, like I said, is your next door neighbor. Yeah. Went to public school. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I can I can I can tell you when I thought the sky was gray, it really wasn't. It was polluted. That was back in the '70s. I can tell you about uh, rivers being on fire. Those kind of things. I didn't understand it. I was too young. But fortunately, at that time, there was an EPA in place. When it comes to the people that serve this agency, they've come up through the ranks. I served in the military for 20 years. Retired. Came into the federal service, swore an oath in both of those, and, and, and surprisingly was the exact same oath <laughs> to protect and defend the, the United States and the Constitution. And that's what federal employees do day in and day out. They're dedicated to the service. I used to be a contractor in that brief time between retiring from the military and coming into federal service. When I was serving in a contractor position, it was all about the bottom, you know, how much money can we make? How much money can we make? 
in the federal sub service, it's not about how much money you can make, it's how well can you do the job. I understand the red tape that's involved, that's a different battle, there's ways to deal with red tape. But when it comes down to the service that those uh, employees put in there, they're putting their heart and soul into what they do because they believe in it. So you've got a uh, 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 fresh, somebody just out of college or somebody maybe just, just early in their work career. They come to work for, for the federal government, EPA or any of the other agencies right. here. I mean, just give me a, what's a ballpark figure of where they, where they start out? I'm going to give you a good ballpark figure. When you're at the top of the GS level, you can make anywhere up up to maybe $100,000, but that is not where you start. Now, imagine. The top of the GS level. That's right. You got grades, GS1 yeah. all the way up to GS15. If, you, if you're successful, not everybody makes it to the GS15 level, but in your career, if you make it to at least a 13, you're probably making somewhere around $80,000. $80, in D.C., you know that that's, that's not a whole lot of money. But a contractor, not the individual that we might sit across the table from. I actually one time tried to negotiate that as part of my salary. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you hire an uh, employee and you pay them 80 You hire a con contractor. Yeah. You pay them a million dollars. <laughs> if I'm successful at the end of my performance period, I'd waive the salary you normally give me, and I'll just take 10% of what you would have paid a contractor. <laughs> that didn't fly too well. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's a myth that the, the, the federal worker is making, you know, just barrels of money. That's not true. Many are struggling. They're at the GS-5 level. And, and on another note, as we lose these, these positions, right. they go out 14s with a lot of technical knowledge, but they come in you replace them with a five or a seven. You're not paying them enough money if they have the talent. They don't have the, you, you're not, yeah. a con so it's unattractive now. What's the value in coming? And, 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 and things that the union negotiate, you kind of dangle those things. We talk about work schedules. We have a work schedule for you. We have uh, the ability to work from home, you know, and that kind of thing. But those, 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 those don't, don't, that doesn't pay the bills. No. No. So, uh, so t let's take it to the other to the end of the career. Mm -hmm. Somebody again. I know it's hard because there's so many variations here. But the if it's average, somebody's put in 25, 30 years, whatever. They retire and they've got their federal pension. Correct. Right. Uh, right. A federal pension, average federal pension for. What so are we so for me to speak to it, but uh, I, I would probably think you at what your federal pension may. I'm estimating. Yeah. I'm right. Not after, 40, 50, when, when you've been used to right. a regular salary, that's a, that's a tremendous cut, too. Mm -hmm. And again. And you got two systems now. you got the CSRS for people that were in well back, and people coming in as recently as maybe, uh, let's say, late 90s, 2000, they're on the first system where they're pretty much investing into the to stock market is a three-tiered system. So, you, you know, in the military, I was more like CSRS. You do you do 20 years, you definitely you get this percentage, 50% after 20, and a 2.5% every year after that. That's the old system, but that's uh, that's gone by the wayside. Well, the bottom line is, I mean, uh, the, this this uh, this myth, right? It is a myth uh, that federal employees are living high on the hog is just uh, far from the truth. Yeah, far from the truth. Uh, and um, we salute you for all the good work that you're doing. And I think it's important to recognize that, uh, as, as we say here when we talk about the FGE, 
proud to get up and work for America every day. And you pointed this out, too. These are people who are dedicated. They have a mission. They believe in what they're doing. They know how important it is. That's right. Uh, And you are public servants, right? right? Working for uh, all of us taxpayers, right, right? day in and day out. Um, And um, no matter kind of who's in charge up the top. That's right. right. When you get somebody who who is against your central mission, like a Scott Pruitt at EPA, it makes it especially tough. Very difficult, yes. Yeah. I mean, when well, we relate that back to the military experience. I've been yeah. in the military for 20 years. Got to stop you right there. Okay. I, I know where you're going, though. All but right. I, I, I tell you what, uh, I just want to thank you for hanging in there. And Scott Pruitt will be gone soon, and hopefully the EPA will be there still strong as ever. Nate James from the AFGE, AFGE.org. Thanks so much for coming in. All right. Save the EPA. This is the yeah. Bill Press Show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. It is hot as hell out there, so uh, stay cool and drink lots of water. Hello, everybody. What do you say on a Tuesday? Tuesday, July 3rd, it is the Bill Press Show. We are booming out to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio right here on Capitol Hill. With all the news of the day, bringing you up to date. Kind of quiet day in Washington with uh, Congress out of session. But uh, don't worry, Donald Trump uh, is stirring things up, uh, as as he always does, uh, down at the White House. uh, Busy tweeting this morning and busy yesterday interviewing four different candidates for uh, his um, nominee to replace Anthony Kennedy on the United States Supreme Court. We'll tell you what's going on and give you a chance to uh, comment on it. Uh, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. And joining us uh, in studio here for this next uh, half hour, by the way, um, Tom Perez, chairman of the Democratic National Committee, will be joining us a half an hour from now for this first half hour. Christopher Catalago from Politico, covering the White House for Politico, particularly on immigration issues, joins us. Chris, it's good to see you. Good to see you. And welcome to Washington, D.C. Thank you. All the way from Sacramento, where I spent a good nine years working for Jerry Brown. And you've been covering Jerry Brown for the uh, last few years. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I was there for his first time as governor. You've been there for it. So that's when he was the youngest governor in America. You were there when he's now the oldest governor in America. It's like looking into the future, isn't it, Chris? Look at, you're looking right at it. With uh, the- <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a very... It was, it was very much the same Jerry Brown, but I think very much a different Jerry Brown in some ways, too. Good, no, yeah. good way of putting it, yeah. Many ways the same, but, boy, a lot of changes, too, indeed. Not just his age, but uh, he mellowed a lot. 
uh, and as I think he's at the top of his career right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Going out in style. You know, uh, anyhow, we've got lots to talk about here with uh, Chris and, and with all of you. Don't forget, send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. But first, Peter's got the big headlines the of the day. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, so if you've walked around D.C. at all, I'm sure you've seen these dockless bikes and dockless scooters and things like that. All over the place. Yeah, these are the ones that you can just see on the side of the road. You just you don't have to do anything other than use your app to, and you just take off. You just go with it. Well, right. you're going to be shocked to hear this. No. The bikes are being stolen and vandalized at a remarkably fast rate. And it's not just here in Washington, D.C. It's where they've rolled this program out around the country. Some companies are saying that they have lost 50% of their bikes. Oh, my God. They're just gone. Or if they're not gone, they've yeah, been destroyed yeah, to the yeah. point of where it doesn't even make any sense to try and fix them. Now, they acknowledge that users have figured out a way how to cheat the system because... You do have to give them some sort of a credit card to be able to use them. I'm not going to tell you some of the ways that you can do it. (laughs) You can cheat the system, but they lay it out in this Washington Post article that I'm referencing here. So, look, if you're going to take one of those bikes, don't don't be a jerk. Don't don't wreck it. Don't steal it. But I wonder how what the what the rate is. Do you know with the like the capital bike system where they? Well, they say that one's pretty good actually. But yeah, but it's not perfect because one of the things that people are doing is using the prepaid credit cards, which aren't actually tied back to you. So you put in your card, you get you know you pay whatever it is three dollars to get it, and then what are they going to do? They're not going to come look for you because those systems have existed in many American cities now successfully for years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I see them all over Washington. Yeah. One final story. Yesterday it was all about LeBron James uh, signing to join the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. Well, yesterday DeMarcus Cousins, a uh, player who used to play for the uh, Pelicans, signed to join the Golden State Warriors. He is a <laughs> dominant, dominant player. Uh, he signed for a very, very a steal. One year, $5.3 million. Oh. It takes it very, very clear. He's just in this for the ring. He wants to go get a ring. I mean, that's a big move. Yeah. So the Warriors are fighting back. They're fighting back. <laughs> this is the Bill Press Show. Here we go on a Tuesday, Tuesday, July 3rd. Hello, everybody. Welcome back here to the Bill Press Show, or welcome if you're just joining us for the first time as we boom out to you coast to coast all the way across this great land of ours uh, from the shores of California here to the Chesapeake Bay, north, south, east, west. We're, we're with you um, wherever you are uh, from our studio in Capitol Hill with the news of the day, such as it is on a kind of slow day in Washington, D.C., with Congress uh, out of town and this heat wave gripping the entire country. You saw the map on uh, CBS News last night. Ninety-nine percent of the country experiencing above, experiencing above average temperatures. So do what you can to stay inside, stay cool, keep the air conditioning cranked up, and drink lots of water. Here in studio with us uh, to particularly bring us up to date on what's happening down at the White House on the immigration front, uh, Donald Trump tweeting again this morning about MS-13 and Democrats uh, who are uh, um, not agreeing with him on immigration. 
must be for open borders and must be for allowing MS-13 to basically take over the country. Christopher Catalagos covers the White House for Politico, joining us in studio. Again, good to see you. Thank good you. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Brand new to Washington, D.C., we That's might right. point out, from uh, Sacramento and the Sacramento Bee. That's right. Uh, covering the state capitol there. Very interesting. Were you surprised that um, Kevin DeLeon did not do better uh, in against Diane Feinstein, and Antonia Villaraigosa didn't do better against Gavin Newsom? Two statewide Latino candidates, but everybody had a lot of hopes for and didn't quite make it. So I'm, I was not surprised by Viragosa simply because he's been out of government and out of office for so many years. 2013, you know, it's a lifetime in politics. Is uh, that having, when he left, having left as, the mayor's uh, mayors? Yeah, um, I didn't realize it was already five and, years. And they're yeah. in the, the summer, so you get, you know, from the... Um, 2009 to 2013, and, so, and you know, you, you're running against uh, Gavin Newsom, who um, is very active and adept at kind of putting himself out there on on issues, despite Lute- having... You know, right, lieutenant governor. That's right. And has been running for governor since he was three years old, I think. Yeah, <laughs> certainly since he was three, uh, and uh, uh, potentially since 2010 when Jerry Brown ran, and then, uh, of course, he got in so early i think uh yeah. within a within a year of brown uh, winning his uh, fourth mm-hmm. term mm-hmm. newsom was already fully oh, in the oh, race raising money and, totally right um de Leon, i think the whole ball game for him was getting into this second spot um in the top two primary mm-hmm. and so i think um you know everybody looks at uh, uh percentages i i think the day you know the toughest thing for him is you have someone like Senator Feinstein who, um, you know, you could call her out on one issue or another throughout the campaign, but she has the ability not only to kind of marshal the national media and say, hey, this is where I actually am on this issue. So it's she's such a difficult person given her background and her bio and the position she holds and the committee uh, positions that she she will be front and center. So she's she's a hard person to target from the left. Um, for a lot of reasons, and you saw her kind of shifting gears on the death penalty. Oh, I know. I I I never thought uh, I'm still California voter. I never thought I would live long enough to see Diane Feinstein oppose the death penalty. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, no, she's a formidable candidate. I think you've got to say she's uh, she's going to be reelected in November. Um, and uh, I I was surprised at the margin of victory. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I I think the. You know, it's it's a, a primary in California. Everyone is always wondering about what percentage you can get the Latino vote up to. I'll be interested to see what it is in, in November. Um, and then, of course, in 2020, um, you know, it's been the sleeping giant for so many years. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, like talking about the immigration issues that are out there, if there's anything to, to motivate um, uh, you know, liberal voters, progressive voters, and also Latino voters, young voters, uh, you know, that's probably the big question mark out well, there. Well, that, that gets us to what I want to ask you about with Donald Trump, because Donald Trump clearly sees, look, it, it, last year the Republicans said, we've got to pass this tax cut bill because we need an issue for 2018. And it's going to be tax cuts, and everybody's going to be happy because everybody gets a tax cut, and da-da-da, it's going to boom, the economy's going to be booming. They Forget it, forget it. The tax cut bill wasn't as good as they said it was, of course, uh, didn't really help the middle class, and they realize it's not cutting it as an electoral issue. So now Donald Trump says, we're going to win on immigration. 
That's the issue for 2018. But as you point out, the immigration issue plays both ways, right? It motivates, it may motivate Donald Trump's base, and it does, being as tough as nails on immigration. But it also motivates progressives and particularly the Latino community who see it as just a crackdown, uh, immoral, illegal crackdown on on immigrants who are coming to this country, some of them with very good reason, fleeing violence uh, in Central America. So where is Donald Trump? <laughs> and this morning again, he's decided anybody, he brands anybody, most recently Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, yep. particularly by name, the White House yesterday tweeting out by name against those two senators saying, in effect, they are for open borders and they love MS-13. Those are the lines. Um, I think you go back, you, you mentioned the tax bill. You know, Earlier on, a uh, couple months ago, you talked with some of his campaign folks, some people in the White House who were helping craft the message, and there was a little bit of a division. Some people thought, hey, he should be tweeting a lot more about the tax bill. This is a winner for us. This is something that's going to turn people out. Over the last two months, month and a half, month, you've seen a, a shift in that, even internally among those folks saying, hey, this is something he should still talk about. This is not something he's going to drop from his stump speech. He's This is yeah. a deliverable. There are a lot of his supporters are happy about it. He's not going to, this is not going to go away. But in terms of whether it's going to really drive turnout for him, the thought is Democrats are energized. Progressives are energized. They are likely to turn out. We don't know if they will, but mm -hmm. in, in some of mm -hmm. these key congressional districts. So how does Donald Trump fire up his folks? How does he... Uh, get them um, engaged in this election, and I think immigration is, is a huge one. We started to see official memos come out of the White House using uh, and emails uh, to mm -hmm. reporters using terms like animals and MS-13. Trump has a line in his stump speech about, uh, quote-unquote, liberating towns on Long Island, um, and this is ICE and some of the federal agencies. Um, and so and I the think infestation. Yes, that's another one that's yeah. that's commonly used. So, uh, you know, the question is: these are um, loyal and um, uh, voters you can generally depend on that he's banking on. These are people who um, who who like Donald Trump, who would turn out for Donald Trump. But the question is: are they going to turn out for Congressman X or Congresswoman X? Um, you know, with with Trump not on the ballot, the goal is how do they essentially put him on the ballot? And there's a few ways. Immigration's a big one. Another one is the specter of impeachment. Um, another one is uh, you're hearing a lot of attacks not only on Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, but trying to paint the Democratic Party as being led by folks like Maxine Waters. Um, that's a very common yeah. uh, way to get people uh, whipped up. So immigration itself, I think it, 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 the policy almost doesn't matter. It's the idea that, um, that, that there are violent gangs out there and that Democrats are somehow pro-violent gangs, which is clearly not something anyone has said. But I think he's, he's making the leap that if they are not for his wall and his policies, that they are too soft on Immigrants. What stuns me is that uh, I don't think there's any way of any other way of portraying this other than it is a racist issue for the way they're using it. I mean, it's it's against obviously, but we saw this in California. We've seen this in California for thirty years, right? Um, there's not this uproar about 
people who might come from Norway <laughs> uh, or even from Eastern Europe or whatever. But, you know, people of color who come from the South, it's always been everybody is identified, particularly in Donald Trump's language. If you're an immigrant from, from Mexico or Central America, you are a criminal, a rapist, an MS-13 gang member, a smuggler, a drug dealer, or whatever. Uh, some are good people. He yeah, assumes. If that's right. I, yeah. I but I assume some are good people. He um, adds that tag. You mentioned Cal- At least he did. Yeah. And you mentioned California. There, There is a genuine fear among a group of Republicans. You'll remember the memo that came out after uh, uh, a couple memos, but a, a famous one that came out after one of the past presidential elections where they said, uh, you know, this is a constituency that we cannot continue to alienate because – Years down the road, we're going to find ourselves in the same position, generationally. Uh, that was a famous autopsy report yes. prepared under Reince Priebus That's by right. the Republican National Committee, uh, which said, yeah, if we're ever going to get back to the White House, um, you know, we've got to change our tune. In fact, Lindsey Graham said we'd be in a death spiral if we do not lead, take the lead in pushing for comprehensive immigration reform. Well, look where they are today. They're, they're, doing, they're saying just the opposite, and guess what? They won the White House. Here's the question for Donald Trump. Is anything that he's doing now in 2018 to gin up support among voters for Republicans in the midterms, in, in large part to keep the House, keep the Senate, avoid impeachment proceedings, which you know he's saying are certain to happen? I, we don't know. Obviously, that's another way that he can drive up support. Um, is he basically, uh, you know, as one Democrat consultant, Democratic consultant put it to me uh, recently, is he basically digging the the moat too close to the to the uh, castle? Is is he doubling down on you know his most fervent supporters and base at the expense of uh, winning over more middle of the road? voters that will be important in 2020. And I think when you look at the tweets yesterday coming from the official White House account to someone like Kamala Harris, I don't know what kind of legwork went into that, but they basically called her out for being soft on um, MS-13 and stuff. She's a former uh, DA and former AG of California who spent a ton of time, if you covered her, talking about going after uh, transnational gangs and stuff. So it, it, you know, the question is, it, it, are Democrats going to meet fire with fire? And you're starting to see just small little previews of the idea that uh, maybe these candidates, while the leadership in Congress has said we don't want to engage Trump on every single thing he's saying, that's been the strategy is we want to um, right. we, we engage on the important things, whether it's health care or some of these others. Um, these, you know, so-called 2020 Democrats, as we look forward to Trump— are not going to necessarily let him off the hook on some of these issues. And I think you just saw a uh, slight preview of that. Yeah. I was just looking for the exact quote of Kamala Harris yesterday. She she fired back at Donald Trump when he accused her, whatever, of, as you pointed out, of being a, a, a sympathetic to MS-13 mm-hmm. or something. She said, look, as a former prosecutor, you know, I, I went after gang members. You know, I put a lot of gang members in prison. Uh, that's what being tough on immigration, uh, that's what being tough on crime is is all about it's not she pointed out separating kids from yeah. their parents and locking them up in detention centers so don't basically she was saying don't tell me mm-hmm. about being tough on gang members right 
I've been there and he hasn't been. Uh, but again, he that that's that's the argument that Donald Trump is is using. And and meanwhile, um, for the Republicans, they had another chance last week uh, to pass a, a, any kind of an immigration bill uh, to do something uh, about the Dreamers. Once again, they left town doing nothing. Um, and that could be a problem for some of them running for re-election. Yeah, you saw the quote-unquote, and I use the term that the most people use here. Uh, I know folks might disagree with it, but moderate Republicans. Oh, the so-called moderate, so-called moderate, yeah, okay. sod- moderate uh, bill. We right. know, you know folks like Jeff Denham, who was helping lead it out of uh, California, who really wanted, and I think you know, it was, it was genuine, they wanted to, to solve this uh, DACA issue and to get some of those things done. Um, and tried various different tactics in the House to get that um, to get that rolling. So you had some other um, border Republican, you know, or folks that that represent some of these districts, like in Texas and some other Florida, um, who were on board. Um, but of course, you know, the the Freedom Caucus and the the idea that um, Paul Ryan, the Speaker, is now a, a short timer, uh, certainly didn't help. And then you had this uh, wild whipsaw strategy coming out of, or I don't know if you, what you call it, coming out of the White House with Donald Trump saying, um, you know, telling them behind closed doors that they should get it done and then tweeting a few days later that, you know, this is never going to happen and don't bother and then tweeting three days later that he actually never said to do anything. So <sighs> the idea of, you know, uh, who was leading that whole charge, you had the moderates, you had yeah. Freedom Caucus, you had Trump. It just made for um, and has made for some real uh, you know, mixed messaging. Uh, now, I'm glad you mentioned that because it was really uh, it was unbelievable to watch. Uh, it, it, within one week, Donald Trump said, um, don't bother trying to do anything about immigration this year, it's, you know, because Democrats will never cooperate and we got to wait until after the midterms. A couple days later, he says, Republicans have to vote to pass this good lat two bill, whatever. You got to do it. You got to get out there and vote for it. It didn't pass. So then a couple days later, he says, I never asked the Republicans to vote for it. He was all over Mm -hmm. the place, contradicting himself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're we're talking about a specific legislation to solve specific issues. If you zoom out, you know. 30,000 foot or higher, look at what we've been talking about over the last couple weeks. We went from the uh, family separations and now the the line that everyone's it, – it, it's amazing to me and it's, and it's interesting. And I think it, it's probably in some ways to Trump's team's credit that the, that the issue of the day and the, the headlines that are rolling across cable yeah. news aren't, have now gone in large part from some of these earlier issues to guess what? abolish ice yeah and you know these this just kind of keeps happening it's happened since the 2016 campaign and it continues to happen you know democrats will blame all kinds of things for that but there's something to the idea that he and and again some of these same democratic consultants who are working for some of these top candidates will say um you know that particular issue it, it 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 does it does sort of make them vulnerable. I mean, they're talking about something that is a very nuanced argument about abolishing a, a department. No. 
and and they're allowing uh, you know Republicans to really capitalize on that and, and basically say what they want it to mean. No, no, no. That, that's that's an excellent point. They're, they've been very, very clever. That a week ago it was all the pictures of the little kids separated from their parents, and now suddenly, and that's all anybody was talking about. Mm-hmm. And now it's. What Democrats want to get rid of ICE? Oh my God! Right? It'll be, you won't. It'll be it, 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 people will be afraid of walking. That Donald Trump said this. Mm-hmm. People will be afraid of walking out of their own homes if we don't have ICE. Yeah. Um, uh, and you're right. The White House was able to to shift that uh, to, to, to to change the focus of what we're talking about. So, to what extent does AMLO? impact any of this or the new president of mexico his entire long name but amlo is what they call him there was uh well certainly he is is he going to be any more cooperative he's not that's what i'm going to ask you he's not going to pay for the wall no uh he he seemed and then he and donald trump had this long conversation yesterday in fact peter we got that clip but donald trump talks about uh what a great conversation they had they had a good talk because Every, no matter who he talks to, Donald Trump always says, oh, it's a great call. We agreed on everything. We talked about border security. We talked about trade. We talked about NAFTA. We talked about uh, a separate deal, just uh, Mexico and the United States. We had a lot of good conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of good conversation. That would fly in the face of what AMLO ran on. I mean, yeah. he ran as a an anti-Trumper. Totally. Yeah, he was sort of like, he was like we said yesterday, like the Bernie Sanders of Mexico. So you know, he's not going to be, he's not going to go along with Trump's immigration policy or the wall for sure. No, certainly not. And I, I think the, the more you watch Trump and, and the folks around him, the more you, you see that he actually, he loves playing off some of these things. You know, if we start to see um, folks down south uh, get into a, tiff with Trump over a particular issue and obviously trade is a big one coming up. He's got a way to sort of play off of that to his base um, and I could see that coming mm-hmm. up in some way. I mean, People around him have, have predicted that wave and that movement in Mexico for a, a while. That's, that's something that they saw coming so I don't mm-hmm. think it was a I don't think it was a surprise to them. Um, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the question is, how much do Donald Trump's supporters pay attention to, you know, news south of the border, and how much does that impact the decisions they make? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we'll see. I, it, it, it's an interesting development. I, I wouldn't put a tremendous amount of stock in the the statement that yesterday on the on the uh, oh, oh, on, on the his, call. On I, the I call. Think, yeah, no. I, no. I'd like to way, hear the other side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and I think it's smart on Amlo right now not to be picking a fight with Trump on day one. I mean, but by the, I, I just this a little uh, related, uh, related but different issue uh, in terms of meeting with um, foreign leaders mm-hmm. and uh, and their discussions and and where everything is rosy. Donald Trump yesterday met with the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, mm-hmm. and of course, one of the issues that came up when the pool was in there—I don't know whether you were there or not—was uh, uh, about tariffs. Uh, and Donald Trump's argument yesterday was, "Well, uh, if um, if we agree on that on this whole trade thing, it's going to be fine. If we don't agree, it's all going to be fine." 
uh, you can hear the prime minister of the Netherlands is not about to go along with the idea that tariffs could be okay. Here he is. And if we do work it out, that'll be positive. And if we don't, it'll be positive also, because <laughs> no. we'll just think about those cars that pour in here and it's we'll do positive. something, right? You have to work but it'll be, it'll be positive. It'll be positive. No. No. <laughs> no. 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 I mean, no. we are in a trade war, aren't we? Uh, we're certainly at at the start of one. Those are bigger. You know, we talked about immigration as a political issue. Certainly trade and issues like North Korea and the upcoming meeting with Putin, those are much bigger, riskier bets for the president. Those those can really come back if, if, if prices yeah. skyrocket, if uh, North Korea continues to go down the path that it had been on and doesn't come around to the idea, you know, the statement that, that they made with the U.S., you know, those aren't just rhetoric. Those are, are position, firm positions he's taking now that will have consequences down the road. And I think the other dynamic that you're talking about when, uh, when, when Trump brings this up with foreign leaders, similar to what we saw with uh, Justin Trudeau, um, Trump has a thing where he, you know, he's not going to be to someone's face, at least these world mm, leaders, right? Mm -hmm. He'll say that the... You yeah. know, he likes to talk about chemistry. He likes to talk about the, the relationship they have in person. If he is going to uh, say something, it'll be in the case of Trudeau when he was um, on uh, Air Force One watching his, what, he's 21 TVs and saw Trudeau uh, yeah. go off, and then, and then we saw the Trump tweet. So it's not, uh, um, it's not out of character that we would see uh, Trump, uh, you know, making nice in person and then uh, um, uh, tweeting or reacting some way later on when they're out of the picture. But uh, on the on these tariffs, yeah. it is um, uh, uh, he's getting a lot of blowback yeah. from members of his own party now. I mean, Orrin Hatch who has been one of the biggest suck ups for Donald Trump in the in the United States Senate. Uh, is, is is on the rampage tr trying to roll back these tariffs or put legislation in that would even clip the president's wings when it comes to his ability to unilaterally enact these tariffs. Yeah, there have been, you know... Because American farmers are hurting. Tons of reaction from, from the Republican side, more so than you typically see on issues. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, requests for exemptions on in, in various areas uh, also come up from um, people requesting, whether it's a Democratic senator or Republican senator into these states. Um, you know, politically, I think the question is whether um, you know, we've heard talk, we've heard rhetoric from um, folks, but but is there anything that they're actually you know going to do about it? And is this something that's going to hit folks in their pocketbook, which will then potentially force uh, Donald Trump. I know that there's a lot of discussion about whether... Do you get any sense, Donald, at the White House that they could, Donald Trump could back down on tariffs? The it way doesn't he, feel that way. It do, the, I mean, the, the folks... No. No. That's a shorter, that's a shorter way to say thank, that. Thank you. No. Yeah, that was good. Right. Um, this is uh, central to his uh, campaign. It's central to his, to his view. The folks who have, uh, who have uh, exited the picture... Uh, in the White House, the Cones like of the world, some, Cone. some of the yeah. others are are out. Even some of the lower-ranking officials who would chair meetings and do things like that, where they'd be able to exert um, influence here and there, are no longer in the picture. The folks who are uh, certainly, uh, if 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 it's not there, if they don't agree with Trump entirely on these 
trade issues, they certainly are not putting their foot down. Uh, you know, we're hearing like the others might have in the past. Right. Um, and, and some of those agencies are turning over some of the people below him. And, and of course, you see Navarro, kind of uh, Peter Navarro, yeah. um, um, waffling back in, in and out. And he, he is certainly uh, deeply involved. And so, so with Chris, we've talked to Chris Catalogo. We've talked here about um, a lot of the issues that will be at play in 2018. Uh, uh, immigration certainly being one of them. Tariffs being another one. Supreme Court being another one. Um, what's 2018 looking like with those issues? Nobody knows better than the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Tom, Chairman Tom Perez, who joins us next. And, Chris, we thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Uh, thanks for all your good work at Politico. Check it out, politico.com. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. And here we are wrapping up on this Tuesday, July 3rd. So good to see you, folks. Thank you for being with us. And uh, stay cool somehow. Find a way to stay cool. It's uh, not just hot. It's dangerously hot out there with record temperatures hitting 99% of the country. We're coming to you live from uh, <coughs> one of the hot spots of the nation, Washington, D.C. It was 95 yesterday, projected to be 105 today. Um our studio on Capitol Hill, fortunately, is air-conditioned, where we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers, those great men and women of the AFT under President Randy Weingarten, leading the fight across the country, and they're really showing their organizational strength, uh, fighting for not only um, um, better salaries, better working conditions for teachers, but better resources for the kids in their classrooms. Check out their website and their good work at aft.org. Org. Uh, and speaking of an energizer bunny and somebody who's <laughs> active in many, many issues in many different parts of the country nationwide, leading the Democratic uh, Party, the Democratic National Committee, Chairman Tom Perez in studio with us. Mr. Chairman, it's always good to see you. Bill, it's great to be with you and your listeners. Happy uh, Fourth of July to ha everybody. Happy Fourth of July. We will be celebrating that tomorrow, or starting to celebrate already today. So uh, while I was on vacation last week, Justice Kennedy announces his retirement from the Supreme Court, and right away there are voices from the uh, on the Democratic from among some Democrats who say, "Well, uh, it's too bad, but there's nothing we can do about it." Couldn't disagree with that more. We're fighting like heck. This is uh, this is a reckoning. We have. It's important to remember what uh, this president said when he was campaigning, and and I quote: He was asked about. Uh, whether to make overturning Roe v. Wade and gutting the Affordable Care Act litmus tests for Supreme Court justices. And this is what he said. It is, it is a litmus test. Uh, I will be appointing pro-life judges. Uh, we absolutely have to fight because this is not only about a woman's right to choose. This is about our identity as a nation. And and this is about, we, we, we need to hold this president accountable. There are no checks and balances right now. The court, you saw whether it was the union decision, you saw a, another uh, blow against women's reproductive health. We saw the, the, the Muslim ban. We, we've seen so many other examples of uh, efforts to undermine uh, basic elements of our democracy, and so we're we're fighting like heck. And 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 you know, I, I guess I'll say this, Bill. Also, 
I remember when this president took over and people say, uh, oh, my God, the Affordable Care Act's dead. We can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I said, hell no. Uh, we can fight back. I look at what's happening um, out and in the we field. Did. And, and we, we did. Won. And we won. And, and, and I look at what's happened. I was in Brownsville, Texas last week inspired by the work that heroic people are doing uh, along the border and elsewhere to protect kids. This is a policy that harkens back to some of the darkest moments in our mm -hmm. nation's history. And the reason why we've made progress, yes, the courts have been important, but I think the streets have been more important. And I applaud the work last week down there. The ACLU and others were uh, leading the charge. I was proud to be down there. Uh, it was about 10 degrees hotter down there than it is oh, here God. in D.C. Yeah. It's 100 yeah. degrees here. But you know what? It may be a little bit hot for us, but my God, the heat for parents who don't know where their kids are. I, I can't imagine that. I, was, I wasn't I was down there as the chair of the party, Bill. I, I was down there as um, a proud American and, and a parent of three. Th that's unconscionable what was going on. We can defeat all of these if we put our mind to it. Um, you know, the McConnell had... Uh, in 2016, he declared uh, no nominations during uh, an election year. So we, we should hold him to that. We have a president who is operating under a cloud. Uh, we don't know what um, Director Mueller will do in the months ahead, but what we do know is that, that there is a, a cloud of corruption that hangs over this president. And we, we sh we're, no one here is going to roll over. We're going to fight this like all get out. So what's your message to the uh, Democrats who are— uh, we always come, come back to them, it seems, and in red states, uh, a Joe Donnelly or a Joe Manchin or a Claire McCaskill state or, or, you know, John Tester, whomever, in uh, states where Donald Trump won and, the, and, and people sort of feel, well, they've got to vote for Donald Trump or else they might not be reelected to the United States Senate. Well, I, I does, think— Does their vote on the, the Supreme Court—does their reelection hinge on a vote for the Supreme Court? Do I don't think? think it does. I think what they have demonstrated and the reason why they win in red states is because they're independent. You know, they, they, have, they have put the interests of their— uh, of West Virginians or, or um, North Dakotans— yeah. Uh, first, and, and North Dakotans need health care. Health care is a right for all. That's why uh, Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, and others were, were rock solid supporting mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. Affordable Care mm -hmm. Act. The Affordable Care Act is at risk with this nomination in a very big way. That, that's not hyperbole. That's not idle speculation. We have a president who has said plainly and simply, I want to gut the Affordable Care Act. He's doing it. Premiums are going up in so many states. Where I live in Maryland, premiums went up 30%. He's doing nothing to stem the cost of uh, prescription drugs. And so, you know, if you're living, if you're governing in a red state, uh, I mean, your your, your constituents' uh, access to health care is at risk. And you look at people's uh, views on uh, women's reproductive health. This this is part of the American fabric. This has been enshrined in the American fabric. We can't allow someone to walk in, and, and he'll probably nominate someone who'll go on a charm offensive. This oh, yeah. isn't about whether someone's a nice guy who is uh, affable. This is about whether someone is going to gut the basic 
protections that have been part of our democratic system uh, and part of our constitutional framework. And that's why uh, we're going to fight like heck. I, I categorically reject anyone who says uh, we can't do this. I've been, I've been around the block enough. Uh, I'm a civil rights lawyer. Civil rights is about fighting for the underdog, Bill. And, uh, and, and that's what we've done. And that's what we're going to do now. And, and we're going to use every tool in our toolbox. And it's about being there for the long haul. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, I, and again, when you look at what's at risk, uh, you know, health care isn't just an issue for blue states. Health care is an issue in every zip code across this country. There were a couple of important things that happened in the Democratic Party last week. Uh, I want to ask one that you and I have talked about um, uh, several times, and that is superdelegates. Yes, we, uh, you know, people ask me what my job is about, Bill, at the DNC, and we're, we're, uh, we're about rebuilding our infrastructure, our organizing infrastructure, our technology infrastructure, our voter protection infrastructure, and we're also about rebuilding trust, because I, I'm acutely aware, and I ran for this job because I was acutely aware of the fact that for a number of people, they didn't know what the Democratic Party stood for. And we're, I think mm -hmm. they're starting yeah. to understand that better. We're fighting for health care. We're fighting for women's reproductive health. We're fighting for immigrants. We're fighting for jobs that pay a good wage. At the same time, you know, the issue of superdelegates um, for many you know, became a symbol of a party that was um, out of touch with them. And, and top so, down. And, and top down. Yeah, and, right. and there were there was a sense that uh, a few uh, elites had an outsized uh, power in determining who the nomination was. So we took a very important step last week. And I should note, we took this step overwhelmingly. We, we have a, a committee that uh, studied this issue. And, and before that, there was a Unity Reform Commission that was right. composed of um, <laughs> remarkable people who did spectacular work. I have to give a shout out to my uh, good friend Larry Cohen, who was a co-chair, the former president of the communication workers, mm -hmm. who worked with a remarkable uh, leader, Jen O'Malley Dillon. They were the co-chairs of the Unity Reform Commission. Right. They gave us some recommendations. And on superdelegates, they, they gave us a recommendation to reduce the influence of superdelegates. And, and I appreciated the work they did. Their work was very constrained by what their mandate was. They did what they were told. Mm -hmm. We went further last week. Uh, we, uh, the, our rules and bylaws committee, as we call it, by an overwhelming margin, I think it was 27 to 1. I mean, that's pretty wow. overwhelming. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think we may have had one abstention. But overwhelming margin, we voted to uh, put in place a system for 2020 whereby on the first ballot, superdelegates will not cast a vote unless the outcome has already been decided. So uh, instead of reducing the influence of superdelegates for... Uh, half or a little more than half, we've we've treated all the superdelegates, the so-called superdelegates, <laughs> yeah. uh, the same, and we have put in place a system that will ensure that they will not vote on the first ballot. On the first ballot, they don't vote. Right. They don't vote unless the outcome is decided. Uh -huh. So yeah. uh, that is a dramatic departure from what we have done in, in, in recent years. You know, you, you've seen situations in uh, past cycles where uh, someone can obtain the endorsements early on of superdelegates. And uh, there's a sense that, again, that that would uh, that amounted to putting the thumb on the scale. And so we're we're returning power. And in control to the people, we want to make sure well, that. So, uh, how many? I forget uh, because every four years we remind ourselves how many delegates you need to wrap up the nomination. But whatever it is, right? Um, 
Will will superdelegates count in that count? No, you you will need 50% plus one of the pledged delegates on the first ballot to get the nomination. Right. So if, if, if we as reporters, right, are covering a race like this and we say, oh, well, uh, Hillary's got so many pledged delegates already, therefore she's a lock for the nomination, you would have to, under your new system, subtract the superdelegates from that number. Right. It's, it's only – right. We, right. we are – correct. You, you used to see in um, past years – when they were doing the delegate count, yeah, uh, right. They, from the outset, they would count superdelegates. Yes, yes. That will not happen. That's in twenty twenty. Yeah. So that's uh, that's huge. Yeah, and and I will note, by the way, if you put this formula in place in twenty sixteen, Hillary Clinton would have won on the first ballot because she got four million more votes than Senator Sanders, and. Uh, Similarly, Barack Obama would have won in 2008 because he had gotten more votes. This removes, though, there, 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 were, there was an understandable um, sense out there that uh, there was an outsized influence that certain folks had in the nominating process. And, and again, I want to re- this is about making sure we're building the trust of folks. I want young right. people to know that we hear you. We hear your concerns. You may be, you share our values, but you're not necessarily registered uh, as a Democrat. And I want you to join the Democratic fold because we're fighting for all the issues you care about. And we're also doing the reform issues that uh, you've let us know loudly and clearly All right. Now, about. something else happened last week. There was, uh, uh, there was a primary in several states, your state, home state of Maryland, uh, and also up, up in New York, where the fourth most powerful Democrat in the United States Congress, uh, Congressman Joe Crowley, um, was knocked out by a young woman, Alex- Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 28 years old, never ran for office before, uh, big progressive, calls herself a Democratic mm-hmm. Socialist, actually, like Bernie Sanders did. She was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And in Maryland, Ben Jealous, uh, another strong progressive wins the Democratic nomination for governor. What's this tell you about where the Democratic Party's going today? Well, I, I, uh, my daughters, uh, I have three kids, two of whom are, are daughters. Uh, one just graduated college, one is in college, and they were both uh, uh, texting me about their excitement over Alexandria because you know, she really she represents the future of our party. Uh, she ran a spirited campaign. I have great respect for Joe Crowley. Joe Crowley is a good Democrat. He was one of the sponsors of the Medicare for All uh, mm-hmm. bill. He's he's fought the good fight. And and he um, when he realized he wasn't going to win, he exited with such dignity. Uh, got on his guitar and played uh, "Born to Run" as a tribute to Alexandria. Uh, I was out uh, stumping last weekend for Ben Jealous. We had a unity event in Maryland. Ben, there's 24 counties in Maryland. Ben won 22 out of the 24 counties. Wow. And the two counties that he didn't win, he will win overwhelmingly in November. People say that you can't win the election in Maryland because we have a popular governor. That is bunk. In 2006, there was one and only one incumbent governor in the United States that got defeated. It was in Maryland. And he had Bob Ehrlich. It was Bob Ehrlich. And he had a very uh, high approval rating and he was taken down because elections aren't about uh, whether someone likes you. They're about whether people like what you've been doing for them or to them. 
And, uh, you know, you look at job creation in Virginia versus uh, Maryland, seven times as many jobs were created in Virginia than Maryland uh, last year, and it's something like uh, twice as many this year. You know, Ben is fighting for good jobs. He's fighting for access to health care. He's fighting for education for all. I'm excited about, um, I think we can score an upset there. You know, Alexandria's victory was a, a, a just a remarkable reminder of the depth that we have in the Democratic Party. And, and what Alexandria has in common with people like Connor Lamb, who also won uh, a, an upset victory, is that they're fighting for the issues that their constituents care most about. Connor was fighting for the right to organize. He was fighting for pension security. He was fighting for health care. Health care was the number one issue then. It's the number one issue now. And we are recruiting spectacular candidates across the country for races up and down the ballot who are who are fighting for the issues that are core to who we are as not just Democrats but I think as Americans you know I, I'm, a, I'm a Maryland voter I have a lot of people that I talk to about the governor's race and it's, it's what you just said it is an uphill battle for Ben jealous but as I put it out there were no more uphill battles it's not, not more of an uphill battle than the one that we were just talking about with Ocasio-Cortez like no one thought she had a shot right and we've never it's it's been a while since we've seen Democrats run this way, in the way that she ran, and the way that Ben Jealous is running. I mean, he's went out there and just said, Medicare for all, Medicare for all, everyone gets health care. I mean, he's really going out there. So we haven't quite seen a campaign like this in a while. And the we haven't seen the energy, and the energy, yeah, uh, at, 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 in a long time. Bill, I think yeah. you've put your finger on it there. Why have we been winning? We've had forty three races that we've won where we've flipped a seat a state legislative 43 seat, 43 yeah. from red to blue and th- as you know they're in areas where trump won by you know 20 25 and some cases more uh and and we're doing it with this, a very similar formula we field great candidates candidate quality matters and what mm-hmm. doug jones is a spectacular candidate uh, or organizing early. We're organizing everywhere. Uh, did we catch a break when Roy Moore won that um, primary? Of course we did. But you know what? If we hadn't been organizing early in Alabama, You're we not. wouldn't have been in position to win that race. Candidate quality matters. Fighting for the issues that people care about. We, we have been... Everywhere across this country, you, I, I spent time in Oklahoma, and and those four um, Democrats that won special elections and beat Red Trump country, they understood what the people were concerned about. In Oklahoma, as you know, we have tens of thousands of school children going to school four days a week because Republicans have cut the budget through mm-hmm. the bone. That is an absolutely unconscionable, immoral, ill-advised strategy on so many levels, and voters understood that. They understood that Democrats were fighting for their future, fighting for their kids. Republicans were doing just the opposite. So I, I the enthusiasm gap continues to carry the day. I think we can win the Senate and the House. We, we've we got great candidates. We can win in um, Arizona. We can win in Nevada. We can win in Tennessee. We've got, I was down in Texas, Beto is running a spirited campaign and a sleeper campaign of 2018 that people don't talk about. Where we have a shot is down in Mississippi. We're Congressman Espy. We have a special election in November. Once again, we've been investing. And we're going to continue to invest. And uh, the, the, this is Thad Cochran's seat.
Yeah. Uh, where we've we've got right. a real shot. So we're we're fighting everywhere. We're fighting governor seats, the state attorneys general, secretaries of state, treasurers. We're we're investing up and down the ballot. We're investing in some Supreme Court races. There's a woman down in um, North Carolina whom I worked with at the Justice Department. Anita Earls is her name. Remarkable civil rights lawyer. She's running for state Supreme Court. We need to have checks and balances on the Republican super control in too many places, not only in Washington, but elsewhere. And that's why we're investing everywhere. The, whenever anybody asks me about the DNC, I always tell them the thing that I admire most about what you're doing is your slogan, every zip code counts. Amen. Uh, you know, where you got a candidate in every single race everywhere, state legislature, city council, whatever it is. There's a Democratic candidate because if you don't have a candidate, you're not there's no chance of winning. But you say a candidate and good candidates, right? And it's working. And and, and you know what, Bill? I still coach uh, team sports. I played a lot of team sports. You know, in baseball, when I always have time say, to coach team sports. Hey, hey, nobody ever sat on their deathbed lamenting they didn't get to enough meetings in the office. I, I was 12 years old when my dad died. And um, this is my 11th year in a row of coaching at least one of my kids because I want them to know that their father isn't only out there doing public service, but uh, he understands that his most important job in life is that of a dad. And so uh, I get out there and, and, you know, in baseball, you miss 100 percent of the swings you don't take. (laughs) And I teach my kids that. And you know what? We're swinging the bat all across this country. And you know what? We're getting a lot of hits. So what are the issues going to be in 20? What do you think are going to be? defining issues in 2018 is it immigration is it tax cuts is it supreme court uh is it gas prices i mean i I think it's all the above and then some bill i mean the cost of a gallon of gas is 60 cents higher now than it was a year ago prescription drugs are going through the roof pretty low though isn't it oh 60 cents more talk to the people we've spoken to when you're relying on your car to get to work you're working 40 miles from your house and i've we've spoken to people like that that is a huge huge um uh burden on people uh you you look at the cost of prescription drugs skyrocket you look at the efforts to undermine the Affordable Care Act. So many people in Maryland, the premiums under Hogan went up 30% last year. So I think all of the issues you mentioned and then some are, are at risk. We're, we're fighting for good jobs that pay a decent wage. We're fighting side by side with Randy Weingarten and Lee Saunders and others for the right uh, to form a union. We're, we're, we're fighting uh, for an education secretary who cares about public education and an EPA administrator who understands the environment. We're really fighting for for our democracy as well, because you were down to Brownsville. Is uh, getting rid of ICE uh, a winning issue for Democrats? Listen, we need to absolutely reform our, our immigration system. Uh, we need to get rid of Donald Trump as president, because everything that's happening at ICE, everything that's happening in the EPA, everything that's happening at the Department of Education, everything that's happening in the Department of Justice to turn back the clock is a function of a commander-in-chief whose values are not the values of the American people. I took on Joe Arpaio in Arizona. He was the sheriff of the Maricopa County yeah. Sheriff's yeah. Office. He was uh, he was engaged in unconstitutional behavior, immoral behavior, and the answer that I determined when I was the head of the Civil Rights Division, it wasn't to abolish the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. It was to make sure that Joe Arpaio was no longer the leader. That is how we were able to change the culture of that 
that organization. ICE has some endemic problems that need to be addressed, and the most important thing we can do to address them is to elect Democrats to Congress, to the House and the Senate, to use the oversight process to shine a light on the unconstitutional practices, and to build a culture. Culture is what it's all about. When I go into any organization, and I, ha- I walked into the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department post-Bush, and the culture, the people had PTSD because they tried to bring down the division. We had to change the culture. We do that by hiring the right people, by empowering people, and by setting a tone that we will be respecting people's rights. That is our job. We're enforcing um, laws that are about who we are as a nation. So Donald Trump says that uh, everybody's got it wrong in 2018, that we're not going to see a blue wave. We're going to see a red wave. Well, those 43 seats that we have been able to flip, uh, I, I'll never forget the, the people I met and the, the four new head. The, there were three um, members of the Oklahoma uh, State House and one in the Senate. Um, they won in districts that p- people would have said, Tom, that's not worth investing a plug nickel because there's no way you can win there. And they won. And they won because Donald Trump just doesn't stand for uh, the America that we uh, believe in. We we have two competing visions of America, an America in which we're all in this together, an America in which, you know, as Barack Obama successfully did, we put hope on the ballot. We work mm-hmm. together. In tough times, we don't turn at each other. We work together with each other. But we have to acknowledge, as, as President Obama has said a number of times, that, there, you know, there's a lot of folks who want to put fear on the ballot. That's what Donald Trump has done. It's, it's an America in which I can succeed only if you fail. That's not who we are as a nation. And the reason Democrats are winning and the reason we're going to win, I think, in abundance in November and in, in up and down the ticket, state races, federal races and the like, is because we believe that America needs to work for everyone. We believe that my health care isn't dependent on you're not getting it. We believe that our immigrant tradition is who we are as a nation. It's what has always made America great. Leading the fight at the DNC, uh, not just for Democrats, for all the people of America, Chairman Tom Perez. Democrats.org is a website. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. This Thanks for coming in. It's great to be with you. Happy Fourth of July.